Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everybody. If you've been here this morning, you've been in for a treat. Uh, I've already really enjoyed myself. And uh, today we're going to be continuing the second of three sermons on helping us discern who to pray for, to nominate, to be elders and deacons for our congregation. And as I mentioned, the, the process of all that last week, if you need more details, let me know. But the, the nomination forms will be available on the 26th, November 26th, after Butch preaches for us. But basically, the idea of this series is, is that we want to pray for men who are in right standing with God. Just another way of saying who are righteous. You know, we say the word righteous a lot, and it sounds very churchy, very fancy, but really all that means is that when Christ died, He made us right with Him. And so part of what he did, though, as Tim put so well in his communion thoughts, is he didn't just make us right vertically with him. He wants us to be right horizontally with each other. And so last week we talked about being in right standing with God and what that looks like. And today we're talking about how, and by the way, these sermons, they apply to all of us, but obviously I'm using it through the lens of helping us think of elder deacon nominations. But also part of the people that we want to be praying for are people who are in right standing with their family, not just their blood family, that is part of it, but also with their church family. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And one of the things I said last week when I was talking about being in right standing with God was Psalm 1, talking about being planted by streams of living water. And I, I said at the benediction, I could have also gone with John 15, where it says, in John 15, they say, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Part of being in right standing with God is remaining in Jesus. But, as a friend of mine named Jordan Greer pointed out to me and put so well, part of the idea of remaining in Jesus also means that inherently, in this line right here, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we are all branches beside each other. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so when we talk about being part of being in right standing with God, part of it is, am I abiding in Jesus? But it also is inherently with my community. Am I being a good branch with the other branches around me? Part of Jesus's word image implies this idea of branches getting along together. And so I've thought of really two main things that I'd like to get across here uh, before we, you know, to get you to think about this. And there could be more, but these are the two that I thought of. The first one is this question that I kind of, I talked to Colton a lot about this with youth ministry. This was a big deal to me when I was a youth minister. I think it's a big deal to me now still, but when you're in a youth ministry, a youth group, it's such a small group, or mine was a small group, that you're able to really be what I call a cultivator of the culture, a gardener of the group's culture. And so the first thing I want you to think about whenever we're thinking about, first of all, just who you are in right standing with your church family and with your family, and think about who you're praying for for elders and deacons is the question of, are you a person who cultivates a healthy garden or do you make the garden worse? Okay, so let me give you some culture things when I was a youth minister at Cinco. 
One, I used to assign kids to vans and cars when we'd go places. I didn't tell them, you got to sit in the passenger seat, back right. I didn't do that. But one thing that was a big deal to me was I was going to say, all right, y'all, here's who's in the Hunt's van. All right, here's who's in the Lindsay's van. All right, and, and I would assign it. Why did I do that? Because we aren't going to have a culture where you have your two or three friends and you never interact with anybody else. That's not going to be part of our culture. I am going to force you to interact with other people because when I force you to do that, you'll realize, oh, actually, I really like this person. This person's really nice. I didn't know that. Well, of course you didn't because you never interacted with them. Also, another part of that was in my culture, no kid ever sat alone. It was like cardinal sin, okay? If you ever see a kid sitting by themselves, we're going to just quit all of this, okay? We're going to shut it down because that's not going to be part of our culture. Another thing that was a big part of... Uh, the culture that I was trying to instill was I used to always say we're going to be serious when it's time to be serious and we're going to have fun when it's time to have fun. Nobody's going to out have fun us. When it's kickball time beware. We're going to have a blast. Okay? But whenever it's time to be serious we're going to be serious. You can't carry over goofy immature kid kickball kid over to serious time. We're going to have that culture in place. We're not going to be the youth group that can only have fun but we can never be mature. And we're not going to be the youth group that's a bunch of fuddy-duddies who just are like really mature all the time and really serious and not enjoying ourselves as teens, okay? And then another part, this last one, is that when I was a youth minister, and I try to do this even today, I tried really hard to get to as many extracurricular activities as I could, band, sports, different things, because in my opinion, your parents and your aunts and uncles and your grandparents go to your games, right? That's how it should be. And I'm trying to get them to see me as not the same, but really close to a parent or a grandparent or an uncle. I'm like family. I'm not that, I'm not blood related, but I'm as close as I can be. And in doing that, when you try to do that with the whole youth group, you're trying to establish like, hey, we're a family. Like we do these things together. That's the culture I was going to cultivate. And I tell Colton this all the time. Part of your job as a youth minister is that if you got hit by a truck, that youth group is going to be fine because they're all working to cultivate a culture. You're not the one that runs everything. The culture is running it. And you just are constantly putting in the right fertilizer. You're constantly watering where it needs to be watered, pruning where it needs to be pruned. Okay, does that make sense? This is what church communities are like. Throughout the Bible, there is a theme where you see Paul and Peter and different authors who are writing to these churches because they are trying to cultivate their culture. I notice y'all are doing this. You gotta stop that. Or I notice you're not doing this. You gotta start doing this because it's gonna help your culture. We see constantly the New Testament talks about watch out for false doctrine, watch out for false teachers, but they are also just as concerned with false culture. Okay? That is just as much of a fear because your culture directly demonstrates what your doctrine is. Going back to what Tim said earlier, why? Do we talk so much about the forgiveness of sins? Well, it's because God wants to be with us. But if your doctrine is that God only cares about your sins, then that's going to impact, impact your culture if you don't take that next step of actually the point of this is for us to be with Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. If your doctrine is, well, I'm only going to go to heaven if I do all the rules right, guess what your culture is going to look like? doing all the rules right and shunning and, and judging all the people who don't do all the rules right. Okay? Doctrine impacts culture. So let me give you two examples of what this looks like. One, there's a word in the New Testament that gets used a ton. In Greek, the word is alelon. Everybody say alelon. Alelon, alelon means one another. 
So, here are just a few of the many examples of these passages. Love one another, John 13. I won't say every scripture, but you can see them up there. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Build up one another. Be patient with one another. Stir up or spur on one another to love and good works. You can see throughout, constantly in the, in the Bible, Paul is trying to say, none of this matters if it's just you. All of this matters if it's one another. Us doing this together. That's a culture thing that Paul is constantly trying to get into them. I don't really care how good you're doing at your singing unless you're singing with one another. I don't really care how good you're doing this unless you're doing it with one another. Now let me give you a really practical example of this. It's one that we quote often. I'm not sure we quote it correctly all that often, but I'm going to hopefully show you what I mean. In 1 Corinthians, constantly, you see in 1 Corinthians 1, the church in Corinth is asking Paul questions, and he's trying to respond to those culture issues in his letter. And one of the biggest culture problems going on in Corinth is the way that they're doing the Lord's Supper. Now keep in mind, during the Bible times, what we do looks nothing like what they did. We're not talking about saltine crackers. We're not talking about a little cup of of grape juice. We're talking about a dinner together as a church family with lots of wine, with lots of bread, with lots of feasting, a celebration feast together where they all come together. And something is going on in Corinth where you have these rich, wealthy members of the church and these poor, some of them even slaves in the church. And what's happening is, is when the church is coming together for the Lord's Supper, the wealthy people are getting there early and eating all the filet mignon and all the steak first. And the poor people are getting there and they're getting crumbs. The wealthy people are going home drunk and happy and like, oh, we got all the good wine. And the poor people are showing up later and they're not getting to eat. And this is the message translation of this passage in 11 because it helps bring home the point. So starting in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. Regarding this next item, I am not at all pleased. I am getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out your worst side instead of your best. First, I get this report on your divisiveness, competing with and criticizing each other. I am reluctant to believe it, but there it is. The best that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring truth into the open and confirm it. He's like, I don't really know if this is true. I hope this isn't true, but we'll see if this is confirmed. And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out and go home hungry. Others have, been, have to be carried out, too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. If any of you are like, I have never heard that passage before in my life, it's because you've been reading a translation that's a great translation, but it doesn't get to the practicality of this. The very next line is something we quote all the time. The very next part of this is, so before you take the Lord's Supper, examine yourselves. And we often think that that means, okay, I I said a cuss word the other day. I need to think about that. Okay, I was kind of angry the other day. Okay, I watched a TV show I probably shouldn't have watched. That's not bad, but that's not what this is about. What this is about is, before you come together, recognize the fact that the doctrine of the Lord's Supper is this. Christ died for us to be with Him, 
and so that there is no divisiveness among us because we are all unified in the fact that we have Christ. And when your culture is divided, your message is divided. And the message of Jesus is unity. So how on earth are you going to say, we're going to get together and we're going to worship by having this Lord's Supper when literally the way that you do it is the exact opposite of what Jesus died to bring? And so you should examine yourselves before you take this, not as much, am I a sinner, but more, are we good with each other? Okay? If, let's say there was a big rift in the church right now. Some people were in here like, no, we got to use the NIV. Some people are like, no, the KJV. What if there was this huge split going on in the church? Paul would say, do not take this meal until y'all figure that out. Because you desecrate this if you don't examine yourselves and be unified. Because Christ died for all people so that we might be one in Him. And when you celebrate this and you have the poor people and the rich people, it just makes it worse. I would rather you not even take the Lord's Supper than desecrate it like that. Does that make sense? That is a culture thing for Paul. It's not a theology. Well, it is theology. But it's, it's not some big debate on substitution atonement theology that he's trying to reconcile. It's, I want your culture to be healthy. Because if your culture's bad, the whole thing's bad. If your culture's good, the whole thing's good. So ask yourself the question. When I'm thinking about, by the way, all of this applies to church family and it applies to your own family. So ask yourself the question. Before you sit down to pray, God, who should I nominate to be an elder or deacon of this congregation? Ask yourself, does this person help the culture of their family and their church family? Do they contribute to making it healthier or do they contribute to making it more dramatic or more tense or more whatever? Okay? That makes sense? All right. The next thing I want you to think about is this is another thing I see throughout Scripture. I asked some friends of mine, I was like, can you help me think of some examples of where we see this in Scripture? But this is a question that is constantly being asked of all of the followers of Jesus because forgiveness is such a big thing to Jesus. We cannot control whether someone is going to forgive us. We cannot control whether someone else is going to react well or not. But what you can control is, have you done everything in your power to be in right standing with one another? You have that person in your family that's like, listen, I can't control what that person's going to do. But have I done everything I can to apologize to them? Have I done everything I can to say I love you? Have I done everything I can to say I want what's best for you? I can't control any of the other dynamics. One example of this from the Old Testament that I'm glad uh, someone brought up comes from 2 Samuel 9.1. David is now king. Saul and Jonathan are dead. And David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He asks, and they say, Well, there's this, this guy, his name is Mephibosheth. He's a cripple. And he lives here. And David says, go get him, bring him to me. And for the rest of his life, he dined in the king's house and he was given his inheritance, Jonathan's inheritance. Because for David, he said, have I done everything I possibly can? Even now that Jonathan is gone, have I done everything in my power to be in right standing with the family of Jonathan and Saul? And he asked himself that question. And they said, there is this person. And guess what he did? He tried to be in right standing with them. Another example, we get this passage as kind of a random passage from Philippians. In Philippians 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. How cool would that be to be a church that 
Paul calls his joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Iodia and plead with Syntyche to be the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. These two women are famously in the New Testament because they can't get along. And Paul cares so much about them getting along that he puts it in a letter. Can you imagine publicly reading a letter to the whole congregation? I'm going to pick two people that I know love each other. I know Anna Marie and Terry Wells love each other. But can you imagine if I got up here and was like, we got a letter from Paul, y'all. Anna Marie, Terry, y'all need to quit yelling at each other. Can you imagine like how the whole group would be like... We all know that, but we, know, we don't talk about that here. This is Paul saying, the culture is so important. We've got to talk about it. This is such a big deal that y'all's problems cannot divide this church. You have got to resolve these problems, okay? Have you, Iodia and Syntyche, done everything in your power to be right with each other? And then my third example comes from Jesus himself. Got to quote Jesus. Jesus, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. By the way, that could be family, or it could be your church family, your community member. If, you're, if you walk miles to the temple, we don't think about this. We're not, you might picture, if you're there at church on Sunday, how many of you drove like more than 20 minutes to get here? Not many. Oh, you know, I drove to church, drove back. This is people who have traveled hundreds of miles to get to the temple. And he says... I'd rather you stop. Well, let me keep reading. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I've walked a hundred miles, Jesus. You're telling me I have to leave? He said, I would rather you stop trying to be right with me by offering your gift. Leave it here. Go all the way back, hundreds of miles home, to meet with the person that you are not in right standing with and reconcile that problem before you come and try and worship me. Okay? We see this in Scripture. It, what, if, what if the person goes, well, Jesus, I went back, I apologize, I tried to be right, but they didn't respond positively. Jesus says, or I don't, he doesn't say this, but I think he's probably going, I didn't ask you how they responded. I asked you, have you gone and done everything in your power to be made right with that person? I'm going to use an example. I'm going to keep the details uh, not specific because I don't, I don't know if this person listens to my sermons or not. But I had a, a friend in Katy. And I'm going to read you a text that I sent. I sent this text in February and I moved from Katy uh, about almost four years ago. And I sent this text. I'm just going to read it. Uh, this is from me. I'm not sure what this will accomplish, but I want you to know and your whole family that I'm really sorry for not doing my part to keep our friendship. I don't feel like we had any sort of problems with each other, but I lament the fact that we were close and then over time we weren't close. I really consider that one of my biggest regrets from my time in Katy. I know I would not have handled a lot of the drama at Cinco if it wasn't for you and your wife's help and friendship to get through all the times, all those times. I'm sorry I didn't stay a good friend and fight harder for our friendship. I don't expect you to respond to that with anything. I just wanted you to know that I still think fondly of you and your family and have lots of regrets for hurting our friendship. Okay? I sent that text almost three years after I moved from there. And you know why I sent that text? It's because I was sitting there going, 
I never want to see that person and not think, did I do everything I possibly could for us to be right? Thankfully, we had a really good exchange after this text. But that's not why I sent it. I didn't send it because I knew, oh, we're going to be best friends again after I send this. Oh, they're going to respond and they're going to say, oh, you know, there were things that I could have done. That's what you might want. But that's not why I sent the text. I sent the text because I wanted to do everything in my power to say, I want us to be okay. I want us to be in right standing with each other. So I have four challenges for you, and then we're done. Four challenges. One, by the way, this, yeah, are you being a good part of this family? Are you living well with the other branches? I want you to reflect on that. Do I show up and leave, or do I actually try to be a part of this body as a good family member? Are you helping the culture, or are you hurting it? Okay? You may think, like, well, I don't think I'm hurting it, but I do maybe kind of like gossip about people sometimes. I mean, occasionally, I like, those are the kind of questions you need to ask yourself. Is the culture at the Clifton Church of Christ healthier because you're contributing to it, or is it a little more tense because you're contributing to it? The third thing I want you to think about is there someone you need to apologize to or forgive? Is there someone in your life, whether they are here, whether they are far away, that you have done where you think to yourself, I have not done everything in my power to say, I want us to be right? No matter how they respond to that, to walk up to them and say, Jesus cared so much about being with us that he died for us so that we could be one with each other. I'm going to at least try to send an apology text. I'm at least going to try and say, I want us to be right. Because there's something, some stuff there in the Bible about if you don't forgive others their sins, it has a pretty rough second half to that message, okay? Now here's the fourth thing, and this is the last challenge. I would ask that all of you pray for discernment for nominating elders and deacons who are in right standing with our community because they have done all they can to keep the culture Christ-like and they have done everything they can to be reconciled with their family and their church family. So we're not asking for people who are, oh, we're all best friends. We're asking for people who have done everything that they could to try and be right with each other. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Um, I would ask that you would continue to pray for this process throughout. If any of you have any prayer requests, anything that you'd like elders to be praying about, elders are going to be standing at the doors while we stand and sing this song.